Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Spirits and Psychics. I'm your host, Morgan Dolan. And I'm sidekick Norm, learning as much as I can. And today, we have the first chapter in what I like to call a tale of two gurus. Ooh, I like that. So this may be more of an exhaustive intro than we've done before, but we're about to get into a topic, a world, a whole chapter that is a little heavy. And so I think it behooves our mm-hmm. you and our listeners to give a bit more preamble than we've given with some of our other topics, because I know you don't have any firsthand experience. No. I do, but you definitely have secondhand experience. So what can you tell me about what you know about psychedelics and the psychedelic experience? I knew you were going to ask that. And so I asked myself, what what do you actually know? And I don't know that I know anything as a fact. I have a lot of feelings and impressions because, you know, psychoactive substances are very much in the culture. I tend to think... They're extremely misrepresented to the extent that your old Looney Tunes cartoons would misrepresent what (laughs) being drunk was like. I feel extends to how most media represents your shrooms, your acid, whatever. So I guess my confession for this one is going to be I have very actively avoided any direct engagement with that whole class of drugs pretty much since I was first exposed to the idea of them in high school or exposed to them as something I could actually access and not just uh, a punchline. So in anthropology, this would be called declaring our biases. In anthro, it's considered a a legitimate part of the research. Mm -hmm. You declare what you agree with and don't agree with before you go in to try to discuss something in a meaningful way. And so I can sense what you're dancing around. Mm -hmm. So I'll say it for you. Go ahead. Which is when you're tangentially around people that do psychedelics and you're not into it, it can come off as a big bunch of hooey. Like, what is this hype? They're talking about this stuff. It's not real. They're they're saying, yeah, you seem like God right now. I totally get it. And it seems Mm -hmm. incredibly boring (laughs) to the outside observer or to the friend that's listening someone describe a trip they had or an experience they had. It can just get real... You can feel real jaded really fast. I would even take it, in the spirit of (laughs) declaring my biases, I would take it even a step further. Because from my perspective, I've never, like, ridden out a trip with someone and really seen what it looks like, you know, from from that outside perspective. So I'm almost exclusively limited to what people report back. And I can basically summarize that with two things, both of which I think are very negative and dismissive. (laughs) The first which I think is probably wrong, but my first knee-jerk reaction is always, oh, you achieved enlightenment? Well, you can't take it with you. If you're not (laughs) on acid 24-7, it's just a memory, and it's no different from childhood. You know, you you remember it differently every time you try to recall it for whatever suits you in the moment. So it's not enlightenment. It just feels good. It's a dopamine rush. And number two is... People talk about, I attained a higher state of consciousness, and I saw different truths, and my senses were altered. And my response to that has been, you know, my rear projection television can achieve altered states of image display if I throw a magnet on it. But that's not how it's supposed to work. Like, I haven't I haven't put in the Konami code to get banned channels or something. <laughs> I just broke it. And the more I throw a magnet on the screen... 
the worse the television is going to operate to the point that it can't operate normally. So I am very open to having these biases put to rest, but that's where I'm coming from. I think they're crucial to talk about because given how psychoactive substances are increasingly going mainstream Mm -hmm. to the point of being street legal, recreationally legal. Prescribed. Prescribed. That's just going to get more abundant and I think is a fairly common reaction. Right. I don't think I'm giving away the conclusion when I state my view, which is Mm -hmm. that going in, I've had experiences with psychoactive substances. And I think given how much I understand them in different cultural contexts and also through research of what they're for, it's a tool. They're a tool. And when you see them as a tool and not as the end game, it, right. they're much easier to engage with. In that way, it's not unlike when you think of alcohol to achieve social lubrication or sure. as a ritual of going to a party. And the mistake yeah. that people make when alcohol becomes the main point mm-hmm. to which other ways of going to the party are not tolerated or not allowed, or the experience becomes so narrow. And obviously, alcohol is a completely different substance. But I think it functions in this ritualistic way that is more easy for the average Westerner to understand or engage with than psychoactives. Well, it's also much more accessible, because Mm -hmm. you can make alcohol accidentally or create the condition. Like you hear about squirrels eating fallen apples and getting tipsy. So you can accidentally access alcohol very easily. And so we've we've refined it into something that's more, you know, cultural and ritualistic. I also want to push back a little bit. Maybe this is me being pedantic. <laughs> but psychoactive is a really big umbrella. An antidepressant that is designed to cross the blood-brain barrier is psychoactive because it's changing your brain chemistry, you know, serotonin, whatever. I'm not a chemist, but lots of things are psychoactive. And I feel like when you're talking about the stuff that (laughs) makes you see rainbows and feel like you've seen the face of God, that's like an extreme hallucinogen, as I understand it. I'll push back on that and say the word we can best use is psychedelic, because I think you're right about psychoactive being too broad. I may use it interchangeably because there's so many times you can say the word psychedelic, and I'll even get into the origin of the word. (laughs) But it's specifically talking about LSD, psilocybin, which is the active ingredient, Mm. magic mushrooms, mescaline, peyote, though we don't really touch on it here, but that that group, that click at the lunchroom. And- I think ketamine, ketamine is in this class too, or no? It might be. I haven't covered it here. Okay. I just know that there's ketamine. I'm on the West Coast of the US. And so there's ketamine clinics and, you know, you're starting to see the prescribing of that for, I don't know, probably depression or something. My dad had told me he saw a billboard on I-5, so it's really going mainstream. (laughs) Yeah, it's out there. I think it's, there's real clinical data backing that it has some beneficial applications. And I can accept that. And something that's come up in my research of psychedelics for this season of episodes Mm -hmm. is that it definitely seems to be a flashpoint in people's lives, whether it's a flashpoint in their outer life, it certainly is in their inner life, which is difficult to articulate, but incredibly meaningful. And I think that's anecdotally true as well from my own personal life. But I wanted to start the story with that sense of anecdotal exposure, because Mm -hmm. that's how the average person experiences it. Totally. 
it's how the narrative around these substances first really got defined. So that leads us to our subjects for today. Mm-hmm. What do you know about a couple of fellas Boy. named Timothy Leary and Ramdas? Ramdas is a name that I have no real baggage associated with. Timothy Leary, similarly, is one where I don't think I actually know anything. I just have vague associations. It's kind of like when you find out someone announced they're running for president. You've not followed their political career, but you immediately start building biases and associations with them. And I've heard more than one boomer. In fact, my my ancient economics teacher, who is just a real... <laughs> <laughs> That says it all. Just a just a real firecracker of a person. And unprompted, he would start talking about Acid and Timothy Leary and what he, how he's just a complete hack and a bad faith public figure who didn't know what he was talking about and was trying to push drugs on people and just behave generally irresponsibly. And that's that's the amount of detail he would offer. It was more emotion and vocal inflection than anything. But it always stuck with me because he also taught me about opportunity cost. <laughs> Ramdas is most famous for the phrase, be here now. Hmm. That's how a non-boomer might know, connect that phrase and him, which I get assured of that phrase. I really like it. It's definitely withstood the chance of time. In a lot of his teachings, he became a spiritual teacher and yeah. a huge figure in the spiritual new age movement that sprung out of the 70s. Well, that that sounds like pretty pithy shorthand for mindfulness. It was. And he was the godfather in many ways of a spiritual teaching tradition in the new age community and huge Mm -hmm. to what you call the boomer community. So Mm -hmm. a big figure to people like my mother who were doing meditation in the 70s, doing retreats, and perhaps I should clarify, I'm not I'm not using the term boomer as a pejorative. I'm just saying Category. there's a generation <laughs> that they were teenagers when you had the Beatles coming out. So it's it's a it's a place in time. Precisely. And Timothy Leary was, I mean, a real public figure in yeah. in a way that how would I even do I don't know if there's even a proper comparison in the modern age, but the he becomes a very controversial figure, I think is how we can sum it up here for this part of the intro. That's fair. We'll get into the story. But what makes them so fascinating is that they came from the same route. They were buddies teaching at Harvard. What? That's not where I expected this to start. And where they end up is interesting. <laughs> but where they started is most meaningful. Because the, they created the cultural narrative around psychedelics. They were there for not the inception of psychedelics themselves, but the way America started to wake up to them. And Timothy Leary and Ramdas, they were there for our parents, the boomers coming of age. And right, right. it's deeply relevant to making of meaning that is the baseline for understandings and attitudes that we're dealing with today when it comes to these substances and how we experience how they're used, how the Western world engages with them. And I I say Western world, usually meaning Western world, the US, Canada, England, all these places that are tend to be on the same page in a cultural movement, and certainly more or less on the same page in the 60s. Basically, anyone who would hear the word acid or Timothy Leary, and they immediately hear sitar music in the background. Or the Beatles. Yeah, the Beatles. 
when they made their pilgrimage to India. Yeah. There's a lot of cameos that you're not even <laughs> ready for. <laughs> uh, I definitely am not. But I think also their reactions, Timothy Leary and Ramdas, are in a way Jungian archetypes mm. for how I've anecdotally seen individual seekers encounter these substance and engage with them. So I read a ton of books for these series, but this episode's really heavily leaning on a book called The Harvard Psychedelic Club by Don Ladden. Because as a piece of narrative fiction, it anchors the origins of this and all its significance without getting lost in the later bonkers tale that we'll get to. <laughs> and <laughs> after all I've read, I think this period of time in the early Harvard years is the most relevant to the seeker's path in general. The most wild part of this to me right now is that we're starting in Boston, well, Cambridge, whatever. Mm -hmm. But we're starting on the East Coast and not Height, Ashbury, San Francisco, flower in your hair. Why the word psychedelic is used to describe these substances is psychedelic, the word used, is mescaline, psilocybin, LSD, as I mentioned, and it was mm -hmm. came into popular use in the early 60s. So Aldous Huxley, the author, yeah, and Brave New World, the man who, who we all read sophomore year of high school. Oh, I was a 1984 kid. It'll get you there. <laughs> and his friend who introduced him to acid a English psychiatrist named Humphrey Osman, they invented the word together. They invented the word psychedelic. They were trying to find a word to describe the seeing rainbows, as you so mm. nicely put it. Other options were mm. psychotomimetic, fantastica. Fantastica. Oh, God. Hallucinogens, but not everyone who took them actually had hallucinations, even mm. though that word now is sort of seeped in. Yeah. Fanerothymy. Thanerothymy. Which meant to make the soul visible, along with this little ditty of a poem. To make this trivial world sublime, take half a gram of thanerothyme. Well, that's some very Alice in Wonderland nonsense. Didn't catch on. Psychedelic <laughs> came from this little poem by Osmond and sealed the deal. To fathom hell or soar angelic, just take a pinch of psychedelic. That's catchier. These <laughs> words are so clinical sounding. I would have thought they were doctors or linguists or something, but they came up with the words by writing these poems. That's how they came up with the word to describe the experience. The origin right. of LSD and synthesizing psilocybin is clinical. There will be a whole evil origin story for how Albert Hoffman synthesized LSD, but we're starting right. essentially in the middle, the terrible teens of acid's mm -hmm. existence, but the beginning of when acid ran into Timothy Leary and Ramdas. So that we're makes starting sense. with Star Wars, A New Hope, and yes. eventually we'll get to the prequels and maybe won't have the same quality issues. You'll be the judge. It's a different different season, the prequel. Yeah. <laughs> it's a different color scheme. I hear that. So Timothy Leary Jr. was born October 22nd, 1920 in Springfield, Massachusetts. Okay. His mother doesn't stand out too much compared to his dad in the narrative of his life. I'm sure she was a hearty lady because of what came next, but I wish I didn't have too many details on her. And his dad sounded like a real piece of work. So... He was an alcoholic and a World War I mm. vet who was probably just riddled with PTSD because he mm. would get crazy drunk, run Timothy Leary out of his house as a young boy, and go on to abandon the family during the Great Depression. The silent generation. 
Is that right? Yes. Yeah, silent Generation is people who grew up in the 30s. World War One, Great Depression, sending your kids off to World War II. This is contemporaries of one Tolkien, I believe. And so Leary's mom held it down to some degree because Leary didn't just go to college, but he managed to fulfill his mother's ambition for him to go to West Point. Interesting. And it, uh, it didn't work out. <laughs> he got so drunk following an Army-Navy football game, a tradition mm -hmm. I'm sure that still stands today, but Absolutely. he got so drunk in December of 1940 that he was unable to stand up the next day at Morning Reveille, and he was asked to resign the academy, but he was such a little shitster that he refused to resign. And so he was subjected to what's called Coventry, or silencing, where everyone just ignores your existence. Like shunning in the Amish community? That's what they do at West Point? <laughs> yeah, it's a disciplinary practice where no one's allowed to talk to you or socialize with you. But out of spite, he hung in there until he could get a discharge out of the army in September 1941. <laughs> well timed, buddy. Cutting it close. But he wasn't done with school, and he ended up finishing his undergrad at University of Alabama. God knows why. He went through their ROTC program, avoided active military service for, I think, tinnitus or something wrong with his ear. And he mm. ended up getting into a psychology program that took him to Georgetown, then Ohio State, and then the rest of the war, he was at a psych hospital in Butler, Pennsylvania, where he was what was called a psychometrician, which was described as a measure of mental traits. I'm hearing whispers of phrenology here. I mean, it just gives you a bit of insight into how different the academic landscape was during this period. Oh, yeah. And I also want to emphasize how cloistered the academic period was. Oh, it's pre-GI Bill. This is going to college, university. That is not normal until post-World War II. It is very few people go that far in academia. So it's it's rich people, and it's a certain class of people that he's mingling with, and he that he's so a part of. Is that his class background with his parents? Like, I think on his mother's side, it wasn't. Couldn't dig into the uh, as media of it, but he meets his first wife, Marianne Bush, out in Pennsylvania. She seemed uh, a normal lady of the time. I'd say there's not no huge red flag she's throwing up at the beginning, but mm -hmm. she's from our neck of the woods, Pacific Northwest, hmm. and. She and Leary moved back to do a master's in psychology in Washington State University out in Spokane. Are they both students of psychology or are they moving for his benefit? I think it's for his benefit. I think she was a nurse okay. there. Again, oh. things focused on Leary do tend to be a little scant on the role of women in his life. And I am skipping over some <clears throat> real feminine contributors to his narrative because sure, sure. I think that's the happens to be the nature of these types of big personalities. It really, to get to all the detail, you have to push out the... Yeah, behind every strong, great man, yeah. So they're down in Berkeley in 1947 to do his doctoral studies. And after he gets his there PhD in 1950, he immediately starts working as a psychologist because post-war was boom time for hiring psychologists. Yeah. There was huge demand for mental health services and just, I would say, inner life care in general. And... The understanding of how to deal with it was still coalescing. We're still, mm. you know, every nail, every hammer. This is also the era yeah. of the lobotomy to... Oh, God, yeah, yeah. Give a comparative sense of how we're viewing the brain. Well, Timothy Leary would be a contemporary of Ken Kesey, right? Mm-hmm. 
So things are not great, even though there's a clear need for, like we've moved beyond the vernacular of shell shock and we're recognizing that the, the trauma response is profound and requires a lot of help. And so during the 50s, Leary's on the road to being a pompous, self-important psychologist. Absolutely. The power, the social status, the way that that medical model is so removed from the patient itself, like mm-hmm. that's his trajectory. He would publish a book in 47 called The Interpersonal Diagnosis of Personality. And the book would present a statistical analysis of data collected from hundreds of patients in group therapy sessions, laying out five levels of interpersonal communications and proposes a new way to look at personality types. He argues that people have the power and freedom to change their unconscious reactions to external stimuli. And he's really into the idea of society as a game. And we're playing a game, these origins of game theory, where if society and social interaction is a game, then people can be coached to be better players and take over their own lives. This this sounds like a guy who has a purely academic understanding of the self and has been exposed to precisely zero concepts of anything from the Eastern Hemisphere, we'll say. And so Leary's argument in psychology, this model he's sort of putting forth, is in direct contrast with behaviorism, which is the prevailing theory of the time, which focused exclusively on observing, measuring, and modifying behavior. So he is trying to look internally, and the prevailing theory is very materialistic, and who we are is defined by our actions. And he seems to be arguing that there is, you can modify and you can change. Okay. Sounds compelling. They both feel wildly out of date. Today, yeah. (laughs) I'm not up to speed on the latest trends of academic psychology, and I'm sure things aren't even perfectly refined now, but I can really appreciate how the 1950s just was a lot of broad strokes (laughs) when it came to this stuff. He even coined his own personality test called the Leary Circle that would spark controversy. Oh, God. He put his name into it, Myers-Briggs. It predictably got accused of plagiarism from other mm-hmm. psychiatrists. He's, <laughs> I mean, that type of branding of content we wouldn't blink at today, but he's a mm. pompous academic who's not afraid of getting into academic mudslinging. That's my read on him. Hmm. And he's pushing 30s. He's mid-30s at this point. Yeah. Then in 1955, so kind of in the middle of his pompous academic career, Mm -hmm. his wife Marianne dies by suicide in a really intense way. Wow. So she and Leary were pretty heavy drinking socialites in Berkeley, and they would have wild parties and had what we would now call an open marriage, but just a fraction of the communication skills required to make that type of arrangement work. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And Lyra was apparently just showing too much emotional connection to a side piece. And Marianne was Mm. convinced he was going to leave her and take their two children, Suzanne and Jack, who were eight and five by that time. So she wasn't, Marianne wasn't wrong in her assumptions that Lyra was getting really involved with this other lover of his. And she was just spiraling and taking tranquilizers and alcohol. And one night they had a total screaming match where she says, I can't go on like this. To which Lyra replies... That's your problem, and goes to bed. What a great psychotherapist. So she would later that night leave a note on his pillow, and he would wake up and find her in the garage with the exhaust on. Yeah, well, I'm curious if he was surprised. He went back to work like a week later. 
Mm-hmm. And held it together somehow until like 1958. Because remember that book I mentioned was came out in 57. And 58, right. he just says, I'm going to Europe and takes the kids and goes to Spain. And this is right at the threshold of that kind of travel becoming more normalized. It was still a time when you had to take a boat to get to Spain. What? Oh, yeah. This is pre-commercial air f- travel. Oh, wow. Okay. So he gets a villa in Spain, tries to write a book fails, gets some mysterious illness, bucks off to Florence, runs out of money, all while he still has his two kids with him, before he randomly runs into a friend and colleague who hooks Leary up with a guy he knows, a professor at Harvard named David McClelland. And David McClelland runs the Harvard Center of Personality Research, who just happened to be on sabbatical in Florence, and they have lunch together. (laughs) This is like how we met. He went all the way abroad just so he could meet someone in his own backyard. McClellan had read Leary's work and was really impressed with him and said, you know, there's no question that what you're advocating is the future of American psychology. You're spelling out frontline tactics. You're just what we need to shake things up at Harvard and offers him a job. Harvard being that very behavioralist school. Or B.F. Skinner at this time is... A huge star. Yeah, torturing children with white bunnies and whatnot. Yeah. Someone's married to a psych major. (laughs) (laughs) Well, at least Pavlov was just feeding dogs. Skinner's taking little Albert and just (laughs) punishing him for being a child. Okay, now it's time for the other side of the coin. Richard Mm. Alpert, a.k.a. Ramdas. He was born... April 6, 1931, youngest of three boys, to extremely affluent parents in the suburbs of Boston. Oh. Now, around the time that Leary was getting dressed down at West Point, Richard Alpert (laughs) was simultaneously getting bullied at prep school. Ah, of course. He started out okay. He played tennis, he was on the paper, and then he was caught wrestling in the nude with another student, and his reputation for being gay was pretty much sealed. And I think it's safe to say this was the beginning of massive inner turmoil. Yeah. Was he gay? Well, this is a tricky aspect of the story because it's a huge piece of understanding the landscape of Richard Alpert and Ram Dass's inner life, as well as how key things play out in his story. But he didn't come out with his own perspective on it. His autobiography that put him on the map, Be Here Now, that book, didn't even address it. So I feel a little weird about it. Maybe also because in all this reading I've done about him and by him, it's clear how much he doesn't want to talk about it because it's this big thing that's missing and you wouldn't know it's missing unless you'd read around him. Right. But that that inner turmoil is incredibly relevant, I think. As relevant as Leary's drinking, his pompous attitude, and his wife's suicide. It's this kernel of deep dis- inner discontent. Yeah. And a highly formative aspect of how you view yourself and communicate with yourself. And and it goes on to inform a lot of the misconduct allegations that'll come about oh, in the yeah. story. So he does his undergrad at Tufts, masters at Wesleyan, also in psychology, and he's way in the closet. <laughs> he's also yeah. in open rebellion against his dad and what his dad wants for him. 
His dad wants him to be a doctor. And while he was at Tufts in undergrad, he's personally glad handed into medical school acceptance by the university president as a favor to his dad. In his office, the president calls up and gets him into the med school. He didn't even apply. Didn't even apply. He just had these machinations happening without him. How? I guess I don't understand. I think of psychology as being at least clinical adjacent. I know a psychiatrist can prescribe a psychologist is going to be more therapy oriented. That's not good enough. His dad was the president of a railroad company. (laughs) And he just had some ideas about what everyone was going to be. And the chairman of the psychology department, Wesleyan, David McClellan, mm-hmm. recognize that name, he gets Richard a spot at a doctoral program in Stanford, which he almost failed out of. But then Richard McClellan got him a job at Harvard a couple of years later at the Center for Personality Research. And we're back to Boston. So in the early days of his jobs at Harvard in the late 50s, Albert's finishing up his work at Stanford and effectively living a double life. Mm-hmm. He's being exposed to the beginnings of what we would call the countercultural movement out in San Francisco. Yeah. You know, pretty groovy, and he's living fairly down to earth, you know, hangs out with people of different socioeconomic backgrounds compared to hmm. when he was essentially interning for his dad and he'd be f- driven everywhere in his dad's limousine. Yeah. So the the theme I'm picking up on right now is you have a bunch of academic professionals deeply interested in the human mind, if not the physicality of the human brain, and they have a disconnect between how they interact with the world externally and what is clearly going on and being extremely suppressed in their inner world. They're also not studying anything outside of this very clinical look of psychology. There's no religion studies or world culture studies. It's a very narrow tradition back to William James. And when we say study in this context, they're they're at a higher level. They're not reading what's been written previously. They're conducting original research, I take it? They will. We'll get there. (laughs) Okay, okay. But it's a narrow body of knowledge that's considered acceptable. Remember, the birth of psychology only happened at the turn of the century. Yeah. So on the West Coast, Richard Alper would have male lovers. On the East Coast, he would have girlfriends. And Mm -hmm. in 1959, one of his undergrads came to work for him as a summer research assistant. And Mm -hmm. the dichotomy of his lifestyle was so evident To his assistant that over breakfast one morning, the research assistant says to him, Hey, Dick, can I tell you something? Sure, of course, you can tell me anything. Well, I've noticed that the women you're sleeping with this summer seem to be a lot brighter than the men. The women seem to be bright and capable. The men just seem pretty. Alpert took a sip (laughs) of his coffee and looked up at the wise undergraduate. Yeah, I guess that's true. What an interesting observation to make. How on display does it have to be if your undergrad assistant feels comfortable enough with you to comment on your sex life as a professor? Well, it could be brazen too, but it's the sip of the coffee <laughs> would seem to suggest a, a high degree of, of comfort and maybe professional intimacy, maybe mentorship. He seemed like a nice guy. I don't want to paint him with this brush of giving off creepy vibes. He, I mean, he was very charismatic all throughout his life, mm-hmm. but it would definitely cross lines of what I would believe is a pr- proper relationship with a professor. But it was, a, it was also a different time when uh, it, yeah. it's hard to completely draw it into the lines. But but it, it sounds like the academic equivalent of an apprenticeship. Like you've, you've got a, a younger person 
you know, ad- admiring, not necessarily fanboying over this guy, but there's a level of intimacy when you kind of take someone under your wing and show them the ropes. And they're doing research together. You got to have communication and trust to have that go anywhere. I, I buy it. So while to the research assistant, Albert seemed pretty content with his life, it strikes me as just like the way older people seem inherently content or altogether. Yeah. The distance yeah. of seniority, because Albert would reflect on this life with malaise and alienation. Because mm-hmm. I don't think you can live a divided existence like this for any extended period of time without deeply suffering or being radically honest with yourself about what you're doing and why. And that's not normal. That's not normal. So yeah, the latter is easy to fake. It's easy to fake being radically honest with yourself in front of Mm. other people. Especially if other people is someone who looks at you aspirationally, like, I want to get to where you are. I want to be like you in some way. We are capable of having self-awareness and insight while we do weird things. That's totally Mm -hmm. different from having an intimate honesty with oneself. Yeah, I think, I don't know when cognitive dissonance was coined or came into the popular vernacular, but it's definitely not not unprecedented here. And so now we're here at Harvard in a weird old mansion that has the Center for Personality Research, Richard Alpert, Timothy Leary, our colleagues. Mm -hmm. Better digs than our remote viewers had. And Timothy Leary was just about to discover psilocybin. Mm -hmm. So I thought long and hard about how I wanted to frame this next part of the story. Yeah. Here's where I landed. Long story short, Leary takes mushrooms in Mexico. (laughs) (laughs) That's like a cliff notes summary. (laughs) He's renting a villa with friends, including his son. They get mushrooms from a lady named Crazy Juana, who, (laughs) when asked about their safety and potency, just ate a couple in front of them and then walked off. All right. So in the villa, they eat the mushrooms, and about four-ish hours later, they come down from the experience feeling incredibly affected and Mm. a couple days later richard helpert shows up having moved heaven and earth to literally fly a plane down to get there and everyone was talking about the mushroom trip there are no mushrooms left and he has a major case of fomo which is a scenario (laughs) i've seen often repeated (laughs) in this type of scenario mine is the plane flying but i think this exact same thing happened to a friend of mine in college that's fair now i don't want to overhype psilocybin and, you know, give the impression, I don't want to promote any sort of substance actively in this episode. And I definitely don't want to overhype, you know, psilocybin or psychedelics and leave you with the impression that you have to try mushrooms to get enlightened or touch it or have some sort of necessary experience, because that's not how it works. Right. Likewise, I also don't want to completely dismiss these substances as just party drugs, because they're not. I really would not well, recommend them as party trucks. That's I think that's the theme of the whole show. You're you're mm-hmm. breaking down a lot of things that are known and out there, and it's up to the individual to figure out if that belongs on their seeker's journey. They they're substances that facilitate an altered state of consciousness. And mm-hmm. lots of practices and lots of substances around the world do that. What makes psilocybin and psychedelic cousins interesting is that it has a way of taking what's going on inside and externalizing it to one's own self in a way that allows someone to reconcile with their own inner world, or at least engage with it in Mm -hmm. a way that is real and potentially very productive. So at the most basic level, that's kind of like I have my internal dialogue, and then I start speaking it aloud. And that changes how it sounds to me. I would describe it as you can take the last six months of whatever's been going on and sort of bring it to the forefront of your mind. 
And then you're able to look at it all in the same plane. So instead of reaching back for thoughts and feelings, everything kind of comes up front and you can sort and divide stuff out, which is more or less how it's used when you're trying to get over something or use it to move through something Mm -hmm. or for trauma release response. It puts all these feelings together in front of you. So for our our cadre of academics who all have heavily suppressed trauma and complex feelings, which generationally is 100% the norm to the point that we don't even acknowledge it, they're suddenly busting open that trap door of suppressed emotion. I'd say even they're able to access all of it. So Hmm. it's not just that they're busted open, all comes flowing out. It's that it's all brought forth within them. I'm having trouble understanding if this is like a managed experience or an overwhelming experience, if if you're confronting suppressed issues and ideas. Well, you don't have to confront suppressed issues. It just, I think, Mm. has a way of taking what's going on with you in your life and bringing it to the forefront. And in that way, psilocybin Mm. experiences, they're pretty context dependent, you know, garbage in, garbage out, that old tech phrase. If someone's had a terrible six months, and you just let them eat some mushrooms and sit by the pool, they might have a bad time. Because guess what's on their mind? Their divorce. Right, right. (laughs) And they're being left alone with that experience. And they might not have the mental discipline to decide to move through it on their own. And I say mental discipline, meaning specifically the ability to say, I'm not going to think about that right now. And actively divide the mind somewhere else, which is the same muscle that's used in meditation, when you actively let go of a thought versus hanging on to it and spiraling away from the goal of your meditation, which is to stare at a candle or stay with your breath or something. You you can witness thoughts and emotions without hanging on to them, and that's a mental muscle. If we they they go down there clearly, the idea of taking mushrooms, medically, recreationally, whatever, it's a known thing. I know from our mutual college friends that the contemporary tradition is to have a sober babysitter who is not imbibing and can help kind of reassure you and keep you in that more meditative place where you can selectively engage. Is that normalized at their level? Well, the example you're discussing, let's go back to our previous little metaphor of the guy by the pool. If you take that same divorcee, Mm -hmm. give him mushrooms and an experienced mentor to help him process everything that's come up and be his buddy during the experience, then that same experience could become a profound tool for reconciling his divorce and his feelings around it. Because someone's there mm-hmm. to make sure he doesn't get go off the rails or follow a right. train of thought that is now unproductive. And no different than if you're sitting in meditation, and your mind starts to wander, just that really amplified. And, you know, most traditions I come across use psychedelics with a guide. Western therapy mm-hmm. that is using psychedelics has the therapist there. And Yeah, it's kind of a helpful way of thinking about it, because the person taking the substance is pretty raw and open, and everything's kind of coming up to the forefront. And that is, it doesn't take long, I think, to observe that phenomenon in the wild, but that's not how they're thinking of it just yet. This sounds very comparable to a, a sort of profound conversation in talk therapy, where you do have someone coaching you through revisiting your own feelings and experiences. And that can be very emotionally charged for you going through that. I mean, Leary at this time has no context for this experience. And he essentially is trying 
to reinvent the wheel from this. He's not interested in what researching what other cultures have done with it, how it's been used before. He's so moved and blown away by his own experience with psilocybin that he immediately decides this is we're going to take this back to Harvard and we're going <laughs> to use this. This is going to be the future of psychology. That sounds incredibly self-centered for uh, a substance and an experience that I am used to hearing associated with ego death. It's it's not an abnormal reaction to be really blown away by the the experience. Yeah. And especially one where you were surrounded by your friends in a sunny villa in Mexico. Sounds great. And it's also not abnormal to then immediately think, wow, how can we, we have to take this wide? <laughs> we have to go just from the individual to everyone. I can understand sharing, but for a, for a, an academic to demonstrate such a complete lack of curiosity, you know, he, he doesn't want to solicit input or context from anyone who's come before or the mentors, the, the, what, what's her name? Crazy Juanita. <laughs> He's not interested he in what Casey Juanita has to say. And in this way, it very much tracks with exactly who he is up until this point. So mm. it, he would describe it as profoundly changing to him. But yet it didn't mm. change all that much because this is the first thing he wants to do with it. So the Harvard Psilocybin Project, the idea was to recruit as many graduate students, faculty members mm -hmm. from all the colleges, seminaries, everything in the Boston area. They would take a controlled dose the, of psilocybin, which, if I haven't already mentioned it, is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms. Right. Then they would write up reports about their experiences. And he was so convinced this substance was just the key to revolutionizing the practice of psychology that, you know, now, 60 some odd years later, you can finally do psychedelics with therapy. But I don't think any of that, any of the where we are now has nothing to do with where Leary was in the 60s. He is not the godfather of the movement. <laughs> right. And you'll he, see he why. He caught a bus. I, I don't consider him the grandfather of the movement. I categorize it as what one person has done with their experience. You know, mm -hmm. He had the ego of a professor at Harvard, where psychology had arguably been born with William James publishing well, The Principles of Psychology in 1890. <laughs> and he wasn't going to just like, let a little thing like ethics stand in his way of revolutionizing the <laughs> psyche of man. Well, and per your report, he has a history of naming personality categorization systems after himself and being accused of plagiarism. So he has no qualms about taking full credit for an idea he was introduced to and did not actually originate. Here's how he said it to Dick Alpert. We're going to take a whole new approach with this research. Everybody thinks these drugs cause psychosis, but that's because mm -hmm. they've been controlled by psychiatrists. Of course, they're going to view this as psychosis. That's all they know. But there's really something deeper going on here, Richard. Wait until you try them. I learned more about psychology from these mushrooms than I did in graduate school. These drugs can revolutionize the way we conceptualize ourselves, not to mention the rest of the world. It'll be great. We'll give them to philosophers, poets, and musicians. And experimental protocols went out the window immediately. <laughs> yeah. Again, B.F. Skinner territory. Your inflection makes him sound a lot more fight the power San Francisco of this time than Cambridge, Massachusetts academic. I, my read on Leary is that he's, he's willing to get into a fight. He's willing to be combative. 
Mm-hmm. Well, he lived like an Amish boy for however many years in West Point. So yeah, he, he's got some stick to And I feel like other people have said that phrase after taking mushrooms since Leary. It, it feels common mm. in this this sudden I've got it awareness, not to mm-hmm. be completely dismissive of the feeling that provokes that, but again, in this vein of here's what people do after having this experience. Well, here's what some people do because his immediate thought is what a tool I got to go get, you know, an American patent on this somehow. Whereas other people go, I have discovered truth and I want to share that. Mm. Or just go about their lives. Just go back and say, I'm going to have a really amazing fall semester. (laughs) (laughs) And those are the ones you'd never hear about. Exactly. So even at at his age, at this point in history, these are associated with psychotic breaks, with psychosis. Is that not a fact? They're pretty vilified. I think it might be easier to think of it as like, these things are bad. They'll make you go bad. And hmm. there's no nuance in the experience. You're straight edge. Reefer madness. Oh, exactly. This is just <laughs> assuming reefer madness. Yeah. Okay. So they can just order this stuff from a place called Sandoz Lab in Switzerland. And that's where Albert Hoffman first synthesized LSD from ergot fungus in the early 40s. Is this not uh, uh, like a class D at this no, point? No, it is not controlled at all. Oh my. So he's just flying mushrooms, natural and artificial, from Switzerland. Flying, please. He writes a letter, gets them shipped in the mail. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. Little pink pills arrive, and that's how Richard Alpert first tries it. These little pink pills are available at a table during a get-together at Leary's house in in February. Mm -hmm. A total snowstorm. And this party features beat poet Allen Ginsberg, the jazz <laughs> trumpeter Maynard Ferguson and his wife, uh-huh. the legendary novelist and heroin addict William Burroughs, and the popular Buddhist writer, commentator, and one of Morgan's personal faves, Alan Watts. So it's not cliche at this point for artists and free thinkers to be taking psychedelics. This, this is, is very the- new. This is the beginning of it. This is the the genesis of an endless stereotype. Exactly, which is why I wanted Mm -hmm. to start here. And I do want to side note, I really enjoy the work of Alan Watts. He was a Mm -hmm. really insightful religious scholar and spiritual teacher who at the same time was just so profoundly human. Mm -hmm. And you can find his lectures on YouTube and he has a really satisfying rhythm to listen to him. Mm. And I, I love this aspect of his humanity. That he wasn't trying to be a bodhisattva, he wasn't trying to necessarily push content. He taught classes and so on, but he was also very self-aware of his flaws as a man. He died from alcohol poisoning in like late 60s, early 70s. So, But yet had a good understanding of Hinduism and Buddhism and a real appreciation for the seeker's journey in these broader cultural contexts. So what follows is that they all trip on mushrooms. Richard Alpert has such a (laughs) profound experience that he immediately runs through the snow to his parents' house in the other side of town and starts shoveling his parents' driveway with just such euphoria that he could recall it and recall his inner state decades later. I always thought this was more of a beanbag chair kind of somnolent experience. This, This kind of hyperactivity is very... This challenges my perception. He described it as, until that moment, I was always trying to be the good boy, looking at myself (laughs) through other people's eyes. 
what did the mothers, fathers, teachers, colleagues want me to be? That night, for the first time, I felt good inside. It was okay to be me. So all the internalized pressure and judgment has come to the surface and been reconciled. And there's a euphoria of existence. Meanwhile, Leary's kids are home, just upstairs, and his 11-year-old son witnesses a bunch of grown adults falling over themselves because the dog did something weird. And that, <laughs> as a mother, leaves a real sour taste in my mouth. Just Leary's parenting, two thumbs down. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. His, his interpersonal relationships in general seem to be not exactly a template we want to mass produce. So now we get to a really cinematic section that I called mm -hmm. the setup. So Leary's having parties at his place, just like he did in the 50s with his first wife. And <laughs> they're also doing some of the experiences with the grad students in his place, at his home, in his office. It's becoming a known, not even a secret, it's a known thing. So these two 18-year-old undergrads show up, Andrew Weil and Ronnie Winston. They, they want to get in on it. I absolutely mm -hmm. would have been with them had I known yeah. a professor was doing this at school. Yeah. And here's a quote of how Leary described it, which just speaks to this professor persona that he has. Mm -hmm. You know, boys, I didn't have a clue as to the potential of this research until I had my own experience with psilocybin mushrooms over the summer. At its core, you have to understand that this is not an intellectual exercise. It's experiential. It is, and I'm almost embarrassed to say it, religious. But it's more than religious. It's exhilarating. It shows us that the human brain possesses infinite potentialities. It can operate in space-time dimensions that we never dreamed even existed. I feel like I've been awakened from a long ontological sleep. Anyway, the research is pretty straightforward. Our subjects take controlled dose of synthesized psilocybin. We make sure they're in a mm -hmm. safe, comfortable setting. We're trying to get people from all walks of life, not just grad students. We're <laughs> giving this to priests, prisoners, everyone in between. They do a session about once a month. They're expected to write up a two to three page report describing the experience. And between sessions, we get together and discuss whatever insights they've learned from all this. And then he rejects them for being too young. <laughs> <laughs> Because they're undergrads. Oh, man. What a fop. Well, hats off to him for not limiting his research to college undergrads, because we still do that. You know, uh, show up, get paid five bucks, Stanford prison experiment, whatever. It's always college undergrads. He wasn't allowed to do undergrads. It was only graduate students. Mm -hmm. And that was part of the deal that he struck with the administration. So no underage kids, because at the time, age of consent is 21. Fair. Okay. This... This quote you just read, it harkens my mind back to theosophy very strongly, especially the this this isn't an intellectual exercise. It's experiential. I would agree with him, though. I, I don't think he was wrong with that. He just mm -hmm. had that realization sort of out of context and essentially reinventing the wheel. Mm -hmm. So as he's wont to do, he tells the boys, look, if you want to get it, you'll find a way. But you know, out of my office. And so they <laughs> they want to get their own drugs. So they do yeah. what is a real freshman year energy exercise where they write to Aldous Huxley himself asking for his hookup. <laughs> and they did it on Harvard stationery. And oh my God. so Huxley suggests a place called Delta Chemical. And then, oh, pardon me. They steal some Harvard stationery to write to Delta Chemical, a letter to try to get them to sell them some psilocybin <laughs> capsules but delta wants too much paperwork from them and they end up getting mescaline from just a different company that they can bluff better <laughs> so my freshman year of high school uh i was hanging out with this senior 
because we were taking summer school PE together. And he would always tell me all these stories about all the drugs he did. And so one day I just said, where are you getting all this stuff? Like how you make it sound so easy to get it. And his advice was you just go to a place and look for a guy who looks kind of weird. And you go, hey, (laughs) you got anything? And he usually does. (laughs) It never occurred to me that I could write to America's favorite novelist and get his advice. I mean, we did get a a reply from Gary Lockman, so maybe that's how we should go about it. Fortune favors the bold, yeah. So with chemical-grade mescaline, they start doing their own experiments in their dorm building. Wait, they went to mescaline? Yeah, they were able to get a hold of mescaline finally, not psilocybin. So a cousin, not a a similar experience, not exactly the same. So is this a controlled substance? No, not at this time. (laughs) And or at least they're able to get it from a chemical company. It strikes me as similar to how you order chemicals for like a high school laboratory when some of those chemicals could be used to make a bomb. So they're slightly controlled. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got a nice little burn on my hand from raw calcium. So (laughs) you can... (laughs) You can get stuff that can do a lot. So they've got at least 30 reports from undergraduates that they're giving it to and running their own little trials in the dorm. So they're just mirroring what Leary has been doing, and they've just switched it to kind of an off-the-books undergrad thing. They're friends. Essentially, they're friends in the dorm. They're using mescaline as the focus rather than LSD. So now, Andrew Weil has slightly a different experience because mescaline is different from psilocybin. And Mm -hmm. the tripping effect is similar enough that obviously they weren't paying much attention. But Wilde doesn't feel euphoric. He feels serene, Mm. like he can see into things. But he doesn't feel at ease with the experience. He can't, Mm. like, go into it. And he's afraid that if he ups the dose, takes more, does it again, he will discover Harvard's a big waste of time. I interpret that (laughs) as him kind of seeing this edge. Like, if I go further, I'm going to really challenge my worldview. And I'm not ready for it. So he puts the experience in a box and steps away from experimenting with drugs. So Leary couldn't be bothered to do any literature review or solicit any expert insight and guidance. Did our humble duo of undergrads have the foresight to go maybe talk to other people who have done it before rather than just dumping it on all of our friends and asking for their insights? I have to double check what year the Doors of Perception from Aldous Huxley got published. Mm. That seems to me in all this reading that that is the pre-existing sort of literature on this stuff that gotcha. there's not the ability or awareness or insight to let's say hey i'm gonna find crazy wanna and really do some <laughs> anthropological interviews with her and then yeah. interview all the other people in this community find out how they use the substance and then from that research build an experience out of it i cannot tell you how frustrating <laughs> this is they're just taking this sledgehammer essentially and bringing it back. It's. <laughs> Am I just a conservative square thinking that if you want to explore something, you can get some perspective from people who have already gone? Is that an unreasonable thing to expect from my academics? No, you, you and I, sh- you and I share this quality. I think it's unreasonable to expect it from academics who've lived in a segregated America. Let's not forget that. Like. Oof, yeah, yeah. Context. <laughs> okay. God. <laughs> Ugh. So the experience that Wild had is also really common. 
someone has a transcendent experience expects everyone else to have a similar one. And when they mm-hmm. don't, the insisting party can't accept the nuance or just doesn't know how to incorporate that experience into what's going on. And so mm-hmm. the into it and not into it sides get really entrenched. I like to think that in an environment with a more experienced mentor, while could have gone into those feelings of Harvard being a yeah. big waste of time. You might think. And explored them, tried, or someone could have told him, psychedelics aren't right for you right now. Try meditative walking instead. Mm-hmm. Or other ways, you know, the breathing exercises to get into yeah. altered states of consciousness. Maybe build your mental discipline so that you can engage fully with this. So quick, quick backpedal mm-hmm. for me. You say they're doing research and they're getting a lot of written reports from all of their subjects. And this is happening on with, with both of our little crews. Is the goal to publish? For Leary, yes. And I think for our undergrads, to have something to pitch to the grads. And this sure. research, I'm using some big quotations. It's the equivalent on both <laughs> sides of inviting people into your living room and then saying, hey, give me three pages before you leave. <laughs> right, right. It's, a, it's much looser than what IRBS for now. Not, not to be like a methodology queen here, but if they disagree with the conclusions of their subjects, like you're not having the experience I had and that makes me upset, Are they censoring that? Are they just tossing out their reports? They're not even at the point of disagreeing with the conclusions. I mean that in truly a social way. So Mm. the equivalent of like, I really like this TV show. I wasn't that into it. How can you not be into it? Mm -hmm. What do you mean? It's like, well, just this, this, but in not having any, not being able to sort of see the other side. And also this leads to while kind of having a rejection because he's, been rejected from doing the research and he's just not into the experience and then he's also rejected by the second professor they approach because they also mm-hmm. approach dick albert who is much less congenial than leary and <laughs> after they've been messing around with the mescaline for a while andrew wilde's friend ronnie winston met up with richard albert at a party and they really hit it off. They came from similar backgrounds. And Ronnie was really pretty. Dick Albert mm-hmm. had a weakness for pretty men. And they didn't have <laughs> right. an intimate relationship to our knowledge. But they had a friendship that was a little bit closer than what was appropriate by any stretch. Yeah. And Albert shared psilocybin with him as like a friend to friend. And sort what of brought Ronnie Winston with him into the inner circle with Leary. And Andrew Weil was out left in the cold. Aww. Just with nothing but mescaline. I imagine that scene from The Social Network. <laughs> this Ooh. is his origin, villain origin story. Oh, dear. Okay. And here's where things go awry. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to talk a little bit about O'Leary's experiments outside of just giving psilocybin capsules to people. His buddies. I got to tell you, we're, I don't know, maybe halfway through this story. And I'm not feeling like my biased (laughs) perceptions of Leary have been challenged that much. Maybe I had a vague sketch and we've gotten some sharper lines drawn, but he still sounds kind of like a bad actor, an unserious academic, and an incredibly narcissistic Steve Jobs type who wants to be famous for just being an influencer. I can't say I'm here to change. It's not my responsibility to change your perceptions, Norm. I just thought the facts would change my (laughs) perception. I'm here to walk you through different reactions to this experience and Mm -hmm. how it unfurled 
into their lives in just big ways. Mm-hmm. And it could say that so much of this is Leary's personality. It seems heavily. That's that's the thing that I can't get over is I really thought that the primary appeal of psychedelics was achieving ego death and moving through your life afterward a changed person. He seems like he's doubling down. Well, he would describe himself as a changed person in how he viewed the experience. But speaking to ego death, you'll be interested in this part. So (laughs) the next chapter of Leary's experiments was inspired by a man named Bill Wilson, who was (laughs) one of the founding members of Alcoholics Anonymous in the 30s. Interesting. And in 1956, after turning over the leadership of Alcoholics Anonymous, he was guided on an LSD trip. And Wilson was so blown away that he said the experience was a dead ringer for the famous night in 1930 when he fell down to his knees, had an epiphany that was the founding of the 12-step program. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken, one of the primary applications for ketamine therapy is addiction treatment. So Wilson thought LSD could be a way around the role of religion and spirituality in someone's Mm -hmm. recovery from alcoholism. And in 61, he's referred by Aldous Huxley to Leary and writes to him, knowing Leary's background as a drinker. And this inspires Leary to think, if alcoholics can break their patterns with LSD, Mm -hmm. why not criminals? Oh, God. Here we go. Clockwork orange. Leary was a scientist. He was not a therapist. His job was to show how this stuff could benefit society. And they needed Mm -hmm. a population they could measure. That's not just people from Boston. (laughs) So he goes to the prison system, which is plagued by rehabilitative failure, shock. Yeah. And is that ever even a goal? Is pitching it as what a boon to society this would be. This would be amazing if we could convert violent criminals to law abiding citizens. It is very clockwork orange. And who has ethical qualms about taking a literally captive population and just dosing them? So he gets the prison officials on board. And of course he does. First by, and this was a fun anecdote, by also taking the prison psychologist on a trip uh-huh. in his home to like tr- test it out. And that's how he got all yeah. this, him to sign off on it. It's a slick move. And from that trip is how we get the word trip. Because the, psycholo- the prison psychologist apparently said, I close my eyes and I travel. Huh. What, what were they calling it before then? I don't know. Just an experience? The word trip is so bedded in the lexicon that I've been using yeah. it before now. But yeah. that's, according to one of my sources, that's where that lexicon came from. Huh. So he puts together, Larry puts together a group of grad students. And he's questioning the role of how psychologists and scientists are carrying out the work with patients. He describes the idea of doctor, patient, experimenter, subject as artificial, mm-hmm. asymmetrical power relationships. He's not wrong. And Leary thinks, hey, if someone needs psychological help, why not just go to the guy's house, sit around the kitchen table, drink some coffee, talk about it. Psychologists should present themselves as resources, not as doctors or authority figures. And he wants to work with the prisoners that way. Ah, uh, the, the famous house call making doctor. And he's... Larry's specifically reacting to the attitudes of B.F. Skinner, as we've said. Mm -hmm. And Skinner has no interest in human consciousness at this time. He (laughs) believed that the best way to understand human behavior was a thoroughly stimulus response. Mm -hmm. Make them, mold them like Play-Doh. So this is just another example of like academics on the same camp as having a fight. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. 
So one of the grad students that's in the group is a guy named Ralph Metzner, this doctoral student from Germany. And he becomes one of the students running the experiments. So that means he would go into the group with the prisoners and trip with them. Not guide them, trip with them. And he would later go on to co-author a book with Leary and Richard Alpert called The Psychedelic Experience and write his own legacy of books and spiritual teachings. Are they having our uh, incarcerated population journal like we were with the students? Yes, I think so. Mm. But I like Metzner's description of the psychedelics experience. I find it the most cogent. Everywhere he looked, he saw glowing jeweled objects. Ordinary people were instantly transformed into angels. At one point, he walked out into the snow to get some fresh air. There was some garbage by the back door, and he heard a voice tell him, don't look at the garbage. He experienced that random thought in a whole new way, seeing for the first time how his thoughts were pre-programmed. He didn't choose to have that thought. So where did these thoughts Mm. come from? Maybe he could direct his thoughts in other ways. Is that what psychotherapy was all about? We can stop thinking old habitual patterns. The moment was a turning point, the beginning of a shift in the way Ralph Metzner looked at psychology, mysticism, and the mind. So ultimately, it boils down to these people are gaining perspective. It's not changing who they are. It's giving them not even empathy, but just a different perspective on things that they kind of took for granted or ignored. I think they're giving the opportunity to get perspective because Mm. it's also what you take out of the experience. Can you remember? after the experience yeah. has passed. Can you take it with you? Yeah. And so that seems that seems to vary, <laughs> for lack of a better word. That's fair. And so that was that uh, section was from a so-called test trip that Metzner did at Leary's home. And later he would take the drug in prison, like I mentioned. And here's a description of that experience. <laughs> Metzner and two of the prisoners each took 20 milligrams of psilocybin from the prison psychologist. They all sat back and took in their bleak surroundings. There were four beds a large table, a few chairs. Leary brought along a record player, a tape recorder, some books of classical art to try to soften the setting. But there wasn't (laughs) much you could do to transform a prison infirmary into a serene setting. Metzner started coming up on the drug. He stared at the gray wall before him. It was like a horror movie. All his fears were projected onto the prison walls. It was like a newsreel of all the evil acts in human history. And Metzner started sweating, moaning, groaning. Then other wild came over and gently put his hand on Ralph and said, how you doing, man? And suddenly everything changed. Gunther was the mother of God, full of compassion, flowing with human kindness. The horror movie tuned into, into compassion, and all it took was a simple touch. I'm kind of fascinated that no one went into a prison thinking, I can't think of a better place to induce a bad trip. So the Harvard team spent nine months at Concord Prison running monthly psilocybin sessions with about a dozen convicts. And in between the sessions, the convicts would sit through group therapy sessions, take personality tests, and more and more people signed up. Are they selecting these guys based on what they are incarcerated for? Like, are they violent criminals? Or is it just whoever was up for it? I think it's voluntary. I think it's voluntary. Hmm. So when visitors come to Harvard to check out the research project, Leary often took them out to Concord Prison. And there were follow-up programs working with the prisoners after they were released. And nearly two years later, in 1963, Leary would claim that 75% of the participants had stayed out of jail, which was a huge, huge cut to the recidivism rate. Run that by me again, 75%? He'd found a way to solve the nation's crime problem. Go, Leary, go! Except he hadn't. (laughs) 
<laughs> you don't say. There was no control group. Prison officials immediately cited all the attention and support programs as essentially working mm. as a placebo. So mm-hmm. even those working with Larry came into doubt the long-term success of the Concord prison project. Albert believed that the basic therapeutic model was sound, but he thought Larry needed to stick with the project and conduct long-term studies. Messner conceded that their researchers fell victim to the halo effect, putting their findings mm-hmm. in the best possible light. It is fascinating to me that they threw so many resources at these guys, gave them so much attention, which is famously absent from anyone who's doing time. And they mm-hmm. said, we dosed them and we saved them. They're different people. What an incredibly myopic perspective. Now comes the Good Friday experiment. Mm -hmm. So this was trying to determine whether psilocybin could produce an authentic religious experience. And this wasn't the first attempt to attack this question with psychedelics. It had been done as well in the 50s, which we'll get into on another episode. But this is a good example of them reinventing the wheel. They just seem to not reach out to anyone else about what they were doing because this substance had been around. Other people had tried this. I'm very suspicious of the phrase genuine religious experience because people are are describing it as profound and transcendental. What do they mean when they say religious? Is there a distinction here? Well, I think it's because you can't prove that someone had a religious experience in a clinical setting. Sure. It's self-reported data. Well, I guess this is too. But they want to see if you can you induce that sort of experience that from Hmm. psilocybin. So they take 20 seminary students from nearby Andover (laughs) Newton Theological Seminary and tried to do, (laughs) keyword tried, a double-blind experiment where some took psilocybin and some were given a placebo. They tried? That seems easy to accomplish. Well, I say tried to double-blind because they did do that, but it became pretty obvious really quickly who had the psilocybin and who got the placebo. Ah, okay. (laughs) Yeah. Because they're all sitting together. (laughs) Right, right. In the same room. <laughs> wow. And the guy who organized the experiment was a grad student named Walter Panka, who had, had never taken psychedelics. And I think it's part of the reason he thought that it would just be fine <laughs> to give mm-hmm. them placebos. So they're in a chapel while upstairs, Reverend Howard Thurmond, a black clergyman who helped inspire Martin Luther King Jr., was delivering yeah. his Good Friday sermon, the congregation upstairs is totally unaware of the tripping (laughs) kids downstairs and they're Mm -hmm. hearing music and sounds. So you've got a real religious ambiance going on. Yeah. Beats the hell out of prison. And so it was going well for a while. They had very experienced, they had a couple guys guiding them. And then one of the kids totally freaked out and he ran from the chapel down Commonwealth Avenue. And the student would later report that he'd become convinced that God had chosen him to announce the dawn of a messianic age and that the world was about to experience 1,000 years of universal peace, he accosted a postman who was carrying a special delivery letter for the dean of the school. (laughs) He grabbed the letter out of the postman's hand, just crumpled it up. (laughs) Because Genuine religious experience achieved. (laughs) And so... The trip man, the guy who's managing the trip manages to like pry the letter out of his fingers and hands it back to the postman. And they just, he and a couple of the guys drag the kid back to the chapel where they had to give him a shot of Thorazine to calm him down. Glad they had that on hand. And so all the subjects in the Good Friday experiment, including the control group, 
completed questionnaires designed to determine whether they had a mystical experience. And the survey asked them (laughs) to what extent they experienced a sense of unity, transcendence of time, space, sense of sacredness, objective reality, positive mood, ineffability. And they reported that 8 out of 10 of the experimental subjects that had experienced seven of the nine categories, none in the control group. (laughs) Did they not have a box to check for God spoke to me and I'm on a holy mission? (laughs) So none of the control group checked any boxes, but the ones that had Mm -hmm. taken the psilocybin. And this research was later cited in a story in Time magazine that was that all the students who'd taken the psilocybin drug experienced a mystical consciousness that resembled those described by saints and aesthetics. Mm-hmm. And now here is where we get a new college cameo. Oh, boy. Get ready. Because what year are we in right now? Well, for his senior thesis at the New College of Florida, my alma mater, mm-hmm. psychedelic drug researcher Rick Doblin tracked down and interviewed 16 of the 20 students who'd gathered for the Good Friday service. Mm-hmm. And this was about 20 years later. So half of the seminarians, five who got psilocybin and five from the control group, were currently working as ministers. Oh, wow. Others went into such professions as stockbroker, lawyer, community developer, social worker, educator. Nearly all of them were married. All were working and self-supporting. And all but two, apparently, were happy to talk about the experience. Mm-hmm. Here's one excerpt of one of those guys' reflections on the experience. I was kneeling there praying and began to feel like I was experiencing the kind of prayer life that I experienced back when I was in the seventh grade, 11 or 12 years old. It was the kind of experiences that you knew that something great was happening. I started to go to the root of all being and discovered that you never quite get there. That was my discovery during that time. It's a philosophy and a theology that I hold yet today. You can approach the fullness of all being in either prayer or in the psilocybin experience, you can reach out, and you, but you can't dive down and hit the root. That is the kind of humility I thought I would be hearing from more of these anecdotes and reports. So the meaning and context of a single psychedelic experience is more profound than what someone who becomes saturated with it is. And sure. I think that shows you how it's a tool. These guys were on a path of seminary school, had this experience, and it for a lot of them, it confirmed what they wanted to do and confirm this deep faith they're having <laughs> and probably what he was thinking about. And for some of them, they probably were a little bitter that they were praying and taking a vow of celibacy when they could have just <laughs> tripped acid. So one of the figures of this era at Harvard is a guy named Houston Smith. He was a religious scholar from a long line of missionaries. He was actually born in Suzhou, China, outside of Shanghai in 1919 Ooh. and grew up there until college. Yeah, high times in Shanghai. Right? He, in the 1950s, he had a Religions of the World TV show and was just this profound proponent of understanding and exchanging in world religions while still being rooted in one's own faith. So he mm-hmm. never gave up being a Christian, Christian faith, but he was all about understanding, explaining, exploring, talking about the good things of all these religions of the world, and you have it in black and white television. You can still find it on YouTube. Seems like he gets HPB's seal of approval. Totally, totally would get HPB's seal of approval. And he was one of those guides on the Good Friday experiment. Oh, interesting. And he, during this whole time, he's been beep-bopping around with Leary and Alpert. And in Don Latin's narrative of his book, The Harvard Psychedelic Experiment, he has four main characters that he structures the narrative around. Leary, Alpert, Houston Smith, and Andrew Weil. 
And hmm. I've omitted a lot of Houston Smith from our story because we can only focus on so many people. But he was just such a profound do-gooder with this experience, I think because he was just rooted in his own life's work. He was about studying religions and religious experience. And we'll get to him in epilogues of what happened to him. Mm -hmm. But it was kind of really positive for him. He comes out of all of this untouched. I wonder if that correlates at all with him having an open attitude and curious mind when it comes to other people's experience, other literature, and other religions. And you know who also had that? Albert Huxley's wife. And she, Aldous Huxley? Mm-hmm, and this is a little foreshadowing for one of our future episodes. But she was the one to come up with the idea of a psilocybin trip as a mystical experience. That was her idea? That was her idea. Ah, talk about the women behind the great men of history. Aldous Huxley, Osmond, they were all thinking super clinically, psychology, and she mm -hmm. was the one that came in and said, this reminds me of the white light of the Tibetans that she'd been reading about and practicing. And uh -huh. the, all those origins of how we understand it as mystical come from her. And that was in the early 50s. Yet another cameo of... <laughs> other people's ideas and other historical traditions leading to incredibly good ideas for our little research cadre. We'll come back to her in our origins episode, but I want to just give you a little preview here because I think that's such a monumental contribution. Seems like it. So I feel like we haven't been mentioning Richard Alpert a lot here, but he seems to me to be this Watson to Leary Sher Sherlock. Leary's mm -hmm. this larger-than-life, charismatic person. Meanwhile, Richard Alpert's really in his world. He's taking care of Leary's kids. They call him Uncle Dick. He's being a soundboard for all of Leary's ideas. He's there during all of these experiments. And yeah. he's still more of a professor persona than Leary was. Mm -hmm. He fits into it all better. He's not a high-functioning narcissist. And so then comes the newspaper article. The newspaper article. Mm-hmm. So remember that kid, Andrew Weil, who was pissed off yeah. that his friend Ronnie Winston got accepted into the inner circle? So he's been working at the school newspaper, the Harvard Crimson, and he's mm -hmm. been covering mainly theater reviews. And then comes back to school in the fall, goes to the school editor and says, I want to do an investigative piece on the professors Timothy Leary and Richard Albert. For the Crimson. Mm-hmm. So... Weil was technically proposing a follow-up piece to an expose the paper had done the previous spring. A student who at that time had already graduated had snuck into a heated faculty meeting over Leary and Alpert's research. It started out by saying mm -hmm. that despite reports that some students feel obligated to participate in the research, that's not the case. Really? And a guy named Herb Kelman, a lecturer in the social psychology department, was just vehemently against the work. And... If you've never been exposed to what academic fights look like, this <laughs> transcription is just a real window into that world. Oh boy. I wish I could treat this as a scholarly disagreement, Kelman said. But this work violates the values of the academic community. The whole program has an anti-intellectual atmosphere. Its emphasis is on pure experience, not on verbalizing findings. It is an attempt to reject most of what the psychologist tries to do. I'm also sorry to say that Dr. Leary and Dr. Alpert have taken a very nonchalant attitude towards these experiments, especially considering the effects of these drugs and what they might have on the subjects. I'm not at all impressed by the way they are administering this project. 
What most concerns me and the others who have come to me is how the hallucinogenic and mental effects of these drugs have been used to form a kind of insider sect within the department. Those who choose not to participate are labeled as squares. I just (laughs) don't think that kind of thing should be encouraged in this department. And Richard Alpert Uh responded to Kelman's critique. With all due respect, Dr. Kelman, I must differ with your contention that our work (laughs) violates the values of the academy and the university. Harvard has long been considered a fearless leader in providing a climate of encouragement for exploration and discovery. I see our research as right in the tradition of William James. These drugs we are studying are the most powerful consciousness-altering substances known to man. They have certainly deserve our most serious and creative attention. In the tradition of William James, we are working towards the development of new models to conceptualize these profound mind-manifesting experiences. There is nothing to fear here. We have adequate safeguards, and no students or subjects have been coerced into participating in our research. Our procedures have been looked at and approved by the Food and Drug Administration, the University (laughs) Health Services, and Sandoz Labs, the synthesizer of psilocybin we've been using in the experiments. We are studying these substances to find ways they may be safely used to further man's growth and education. What could be more important for the future work in the psychological and sociological studies? How is this not in line with our task here at Harvard? Let me also say that the personal attacks that have been levied against our research not only violate our academic freedom, but they border on slander. Touche. So the only thing I didn't hear him address there is when they talk about the risks, because I asked about that earlier with inducing psychosis. It sounds like the worst experience anyone has had is either looking at the prison wall, which, yeah, and crumpling up somebody's letter. (laughs) Their idea of the worst effects is that experience with the kid freaking out in the chapel. Give them some Thorazine, they'll be fine. So there's no evidence that despite the apparently prevailing belief that this will drive people crazy and induce psychosis, that hasn't happened as in connection with these experiments. What evidence? They're so on the vanguard of this stuff. And they're not looking Hmm. anywhere else that they feel like what they're doing is completely new. And so even if there was info Mm -hmm. out there, they haven't looked to get it. So the kid who published that article, so all this happened in the spring, had never taken psychedelics, but he knew the story was really good based on how everyone was Mm -hmm. yelling. And so the (laughs) next day, he published it under psychologists disagree on psilocybin research. And it even got picked up by other local outlets. It had legs. Juicy. Yeah. So this was the president for Wiles Angle. And the newspaper in general just viewed the school administration as largely adversarial. So he's trying to play that up and leaning into the idea that the paper's there to illuminate any secrecy going on at the administrative level. Mm -hmm. Classic journalistic tradition. But this is another movie detail. Wiles also in cahoots with the president of Harvard to boot out Albert. They've already sort of teamed up. And by this time, he knows his friend Ronnie's having an appropriately close relationship with him. So while Mm. in order to leverage Ronnie to testify to that and sort of come out with it for his paper he goes to ronnie's dad and says your son's getting drugs from a faculty member and if he testifies we will leave his name out so his friend under all this pressure folds and goes to the dean's office where he's asked did you take drugs from dr albert he says yes sir i did and it was the most educational experience i've had at harvard (laughs) all right but it doesn't stop there of course wrote a a follow-up article later in the fall called the strange case of the Harvard drug scandal, 
And it gets published in Look Magazine. In that piece, Wow reveals all kinds of insider information about the drug scene at Harvard and details of Albert's undergraduate liaison, naturally leaving out his own experiences and experiments. Mm-hmm. He writes that students were getting mescaline from supply houses that did few background checks on their customers, never mentioning... Obviously, that was him. (laughs) He does not reveal that he was a friend of the undergraduate who testified against Alpert and that he pressured his friend into doing so. He described it as one Harvard junior told a friend that Alpert had persuaded him to take psilocybin in a self-exploratory session at his apartment. Mm -hmm. There are stories of students and others using hallucinogens for seductions, both heterosexual and homosexual. I'm sorry. (laughs) Is there any evidence of that? Or is this more of his just glowing journalistic integrity? I think it's, you know, gossip on the street, if anything, Mm -hmm. if not completely invented. And yeah, they're all fired. Three years after Leary's first taste of magic mushrooms, they're all booted out. And Albert never forgave Weil. Even decades later, when Weil comes to make amends and will get into what happened to him, never forgave him. And this is what I find a divider between Albert and Leary as these Jungian archetypes. While this all went down, Leary had already fucked off to California. And Mm -hmm. it was down in Mexico planning the next thing. He left his kids with a reading list, his students. And he left his kids (laughs) with Richard Albert. So, Mm -hmm. So Dick Albert's up there in Harvard being publicly shamed, losing his job, taking care of Leary's teenagers, and then... Their house gets an eviction order for having too many people living in a single family residence and violating zoning. So he has to call his dad to help him fight it. (laughs) And they're successful because they describe themselves as a religion. Oh, wow. And they're sort of this moving mass of a scene where more and more people are gravitating towards Leary and Albert and they're becoming this roving constellation. Was there no consideration of the opportunity to take this elsewhere? If Harvard is going to, you know, clamp down on this so hard, they clearly, they want there to be an audience for this. They want to publish research. And if they can't do it under the auspices of Harvard, can't they just go to Stanford and Stanford will be like, hell yeah, keep going. We gotcha. Well, this is why Larry suggests they all move to Mexico. And that's Ah. where we'll leave it off for this part one. (laughs) Wowie. So I guess the lesson here is when you think you've really got something big, institutional ethics and (laughs) keeping up good social appearances just goes out the window. You can't change the world by behaving. This is, that seemed to be some some of these guys' worldview Mm -hmm. and- you know, there'll be epilogues for a lot of these people we've touched on, but yeah. I want to keep it really focused on this Watson Holmes dyad of yeah, yeah. Richard Albert, because this is where things start to change in a big way. From here and honestly, before this point, it becomes less about psychedelics and more about the tool than the tool itself. If anyone has any awareness of Timothy Leary and Ram Dass, they'll know some of the off the rail things to come. <laughs> it's interesting enough for a podcast that I want to go into it and tell you all about it. Yeah. But this early period reminds me so much of just how people discover psychedelics in a casual way in your own life. Yeah. yeah. Or the experience of discovering it at school or yeah. when you're young. On vacation, going abroad. Yeah. Or even though Leary was 40 when all this is happening. So let's not cut him an ounce of slack. <laughs> <laughs> 
I don't know, man. It, society has been accelerating in its, you know, social evolution so much with, with such increasing speed since World War II. I don't think it's unreasonable to see someone who lived through the Depression and, and grew up through World War II kind of getting caught up in all of the the turmoil and social transformation. And I mean, we could argue this is his midlife crisis. Like, life doesn't end at 40. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, I buy that. LSD and mushrooms, they didn't create Timothy Leary, the TM. They mm. didn't cause him. Nor did they create the spiritual teacher Ramdas. Right. Yeah, you know, these guys were people with the good, the bad, demons, charm, before they had a psychedelic experience. They have it. It makes an impact on them. And then they both decide, this is the thing. Yeah. They could have let it go. They could have just kept being groovy. The grooviest psych professors at Harvard. They could have gotten the psilocybin and just used it socially. You know, having emotional affairs with students, throwing parties. But Larry's ego that we saw being developed in the 50s and I think is really of the time, it couldn't let it go. Couldn't Didn't let that happen. It had to be applied in a larger way professionally. And I think Richard Alpert could have just had the experience and gone on. I don't think the experiments happen without Leary. And mm -hmm. I think at that point, you know, he's Richard Alpert's a product of a social class with a divided inner life. Oh, yeah. And he might have, it would have been different, would have had that big splash. But, you know, going forward in this series and in this podcast, we'll explore the potentials and the limits of psychedelics. But I do want to give mm. you a part two because of what happens to these people and their ripple effect and how it informed just so much of how our parents and our government understand these substances. <laughs> how we even in pop culture understand all these things. So well, it's quite a teaser too that you're saying we haven't gone off the rails yet with these guys. I mean, the next episode, I want to get a bit more into how Richard Alpert became Ram Dass and what mm -hmm. some of his actual spiritual teachings were, or at least some excerpts from them. And we're going to see how Timothy Leary became someone Richard Nixon called the most dangerous man in America. <laughs> <laughs> Not jumping too far ahead, but so far through what you've told me, the Watson-Holmes analog seems to hold up pretty well. Because you have to imagine that Sherlock kind of always was the way he was, but he had to solve his first case at some point and get that rush and go, this is it. I'm going to be the world's first consulting detective. And we know from the books, from the stories, that Watson, you know, he, he did his tours, I think, in Afghanistan, different war. And, you know, he'd completed med school. So he's he's kind of got this context, but he's still looking for a thrill. He's looking for a flatmate. And they found each other just at the right time to go on these adventures together. But they... They were those people before, and then they just flourished after they met each other and kind of found something to focus on. Because it sounds like Leary, he wanted something big. He wanted to change the world. He was very committed to, you know, his, his perception of the psychology field. Sounds like on a whim, he had this psychedelic experience, and then that was a catalyst. It didn't transform him. It accelerated him and amplified him if I'm following this story right. I and sometimes say what would have happened to him if you didn't have this experience. Right. He would have found something else to focus on that would have done. Exactly. He would, he would have found another way to get into fights with B.F. Skinner. <laughs> yeah, he would have found something. And yet, both, both you know, Albert and Leary look at, 
at the experience of taking psychedelics as this flashpoint in their inner lives and the way they understand themselves, Mm -hmm. which in a way is this difference between outer life and inner life that we can only Mm -hmm. really see in hindsight. But the meaning in how they made meaning in their own lives, this experience was crucial. Yeah. That doesn't sound all that different from someone who would go on to be a concert pianist hearing their first song on piano or someone who goes on to be a a famous actor. At some point, they see their first performance. So these guys, they they had this flashpoint catalyzing moment that just clarified this this should be the destiny you embrace. Well, it's I think it's a little confused in some ways because... The psychedelics allowed them to have this perspective on themselves, mm-hmm. and they're giving a lot of the credit to the substance versus running with the thing they perceived. I, I still don't fully... Maybe this is something that you can only really comprehend if you've gone through the experience. I would say it like this. You're going to a party, mm-hmm. and you bring a certain type of gin, and you said, sure. I'm going to make this cocktail. This is going to be the cocktail of the party. And the party is fantastic. Everyone loves it. You have a, an amazing time. And you're like, mm-hmm. this, this drink is the party secret weapon. And there's a hyper focus on that. Instead of interrogating what was going mm. on, what was the context of how you were using it? Right. As with their prison experiments. Exactly. Which they, I mean, pretty quickly they surmised, okay, the context has something to do with it. But they say, okay, what's <laughs> actually, is there the ritual of us all doing it together. What other factors are we not factoring in? And then in the deeper experience of, let's say, drinking a gin, because we know different spirits can give you different sensations. What about that state is a variable? For example, the difference between psilocybin and mescaline. It's a difference. Sure. That lets, they're not accounting for because they just don't have the experiments. It is interesting that it sounds like certainly for these guys, so much of it is social, as with social drinking. And yet the experience is described so often as deeply personal. And it makes me wonder how much of the context is the the people you're with and the environment that you're with these people like that party. I think because if we're going to compare it to meditation, for example, it's difficult mm. to meditate. People can meditate in any environment. It's just more difficult. Right. And to go into your inner world and your inner focus, different scenarios mm. really facilitate it. But... They're, I just can't get over the idea that they're reinventing the wheel. It's very frustrating to me. Just, and it's painful to watch them do it. They're doing it in a, let's say, a Western <laughs> psychology context. Yeah. And just determine that they're right. It, it seems very self-indulgent. But then again, Elvis didn't invent rock and roll, but look at him go. It was the time. It's, it, you know, the context of the time, I think, is also yeah. crucial because it's not that weird that they're doing in what we know of where this stuff's at in the 60s. Yeah. If not at Harvard, where? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I still reckon Stanford or Berkeley. But. For all we know, someone was trying to do this at Stanford mm-hmm. and it just never made it into the cultural lexicon yeah. because a juggernaut like Leary just obfuscated all of it. Right. This this yeah. is not a unique idea that they stumbled across. Like if immediately upon hearing about it a couple undergraduates copy it right how many other experiments were going on elsewhere this is elvis elvis attained a platform where people would think they were copying him even though he was already copying other people yeah Hmm. you've definitely added depth and detail to my perceptions i'm gonna have to sit with this to figure out if i'm really challenging the biases i came into this with. i don't know if it is gonna challenge it there's I, i think as we get into the wider world of psychedelics 
maybe, but mm-hmm. I don't know how much will will challenge. We don't, or if we yeah. even need to challenge Leary because he's a the Sherlock Watson dyad. You know, mm-hmm. do we need to be a Sherlock stand to you know appreciate the company? <laughs> but I always liked Watson better. A Jungian archetype, you know, and it's. I think he now how he's viewed now as a cultural figure, if anyone still knows his name in a younger generation, is probably as a cautionary tale. Hmm. I mean, he's not the only academic conducting high... I mean, he he comes on the coattails of B.F. Skinner. Mm -hmm. So the idea of abusing your students, abusing your station, broadcasting research conclusions and breakthroughs that are actually deeply flawed Mm -hmm. and methodologies that are heavily confounded, this is not unique to him by any stretch. He's a product of the time. And seeing Leary as an artifact of the boomer generation of like, is the most, one of the most useful lenses. Yeah. He's a product of his time, but his story is a product of his personality. His personality, which is rooted in the context of the time. And I think Mm. it's easy to forget how different socially things looked to, to our boomer parents. Right, because we can take everything that happened since for granted because we have that perspective. Well, what I loved about Latin's book was that he knowingly wrote this sort of as an ode to his boomer upbringing hmm. and to how much of a juggernaut this was in his adolescence yeah. and to have it as a as this coming-of-age piece for a generation that's aging out and dying. Hmm. Well, I'm captivated, <laughs> if nothing else. I was so excited to share with you this <laughs> This is truly wilder than I thought it was going to be. Oh, baby, we haven't even begun. Oh, my God. (laughs) 